Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. In the Black Bibles, that is found on page 825. Matthew chapter 20, the first section there is a story that Jesus tells, and we're going to read it in a moment. Before we do, I'd like to encourage us all to do an experiment. Uh, I think it'll make sense, so if you would, please all go along with me. Let's close our eyes. Really close them. Mine are open, so I can see. Close them. Great. I want you to picture in your imagination right now Jesus. I want you to think about what he looks like. Now, hopefully he doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes and light pale skin. So switch that a little bit. All right, open your eyes. When you were picturing Jesus, how many of you were picturing him smiling? Anybody? Well, some of you were. I think this is really an interesting experiment for us. When you picture Jesus, do you picture him with joy? With a generous, loving joy. Now maybe some of you are picturing him on the cross, appropriate image. But just recently we were looking at Jesus blessing the little children. You think about his healing ministries. Just earlier this week, I heard somebody say there's the quote in the end of John's gospel, and it says that if you were to write down all of the great stories of Jesus, there would not be enough books to contain all that Jesus did. And then this artist, a musician, he said, if you could write down all of the jokes that Jesus told, There would not be enough laughter in the world to contain the laughter that comes from Jesus and the joy he brings. The story we're about to read, it doesn't appear to be a joke on the surface, especially as you and I read it, but it very much has a very comedic-like punch, like a story that's being told by a comedian, and then there's the punchline at the end. And the punchline at the end, I think, pictures for us a generous, joy-filled God. And my hope is that today we will see him in that way. So before we read it, I'm going to give you on the screen eight ways to help you read this story, just so I can kind of get this out of the way. And we're going to leave this on the screen as we read, so you can kind of help you see them in reference. First, you need to realize that this story is a continuation of the last story about the rich young ruler. Look at the very first word of chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like. The word for, F-O-R, should point you to that Jesus is still talking from the very last story. One translator helpfully put it this way. He said, so you see, Jesus continued by saying, which is a few more words, but it helps 
get the idea. This is a continuation from the last story. Secondly, the master of the house is supposed to be a picture of God. The vineyard is God's kingdom. The workers are God's people. You're going to see a word denarius when we read the story, and that means a full day's work. Maybe you could think of it like somebody working a full day at minimum wage. That's the concept with the word denarius. Then you're going to notice these different times of day, the first early morning hours, and then the third hour, and then the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour, and the twelfth hour, or eleventh hour. When you see those different hours, you just need to realize he's talking about 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. It's the work day. It's when the sun is up. And at 6 p.m. is quitting time. It's when the sun is typically going to be going down, and it's dusk. And so you have from dawn till dusk in these little time slots, and so you're going to hopefully better understand the story when you understand those are the times that he's talking about. Lastly, questions 7 and 8, or points 7 and 8, is that there is a surprise in the middle, and there's a surprise at the end. And this is what I mean by Jesus being a masterful storyteller, not too different from maybe a stand-up comedian and the number of ways that he tells punchy jokes. And a lot of times, like good comedians, if they're telling a joke or they're telling you something that's true, sometimes there's a little sting behind it, like, ooh, that was funny, but that kind of hurts. So it is with this story. Let's read it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went and going out again at about the sixth hour. And the ninth hour he did the same. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who been hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us and to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. In order to wrap our minds around this, I have three questions for you. 
And really, they're more about trying to penetrate this into our very being, our head, our heart, in our hands. And so you could sum up the outline in that way, head, heart, hands, but the questions are this way. Do your thoughts imagine it? Do your eyes see it? And do your hands do it? And the it that I'm referring to is this one simple, not overly profound on the surface, but deeply profound at its depths. It's the big idea that God is good. That's the big idea of this. God is good. He is a good God. And so do your thoughts imagine the goodness of God? Do your eyes see it in the world as it's being played out? And do your hands do the good deeds of God? Are you like him? Are you more like Christ with what you do in your life? Those are the three questions we'll take one at a time. First, do your thoughts imagine it? In essence, we need to have our thoughts shaped by God's goodness. This story is a continuation of the last story, and that story began with a question about goodness. And behold, a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. In essence, I think our story helps answer the question about who and what this good person is like when talking about goodness. What good thing shall I do? Jesus says there's only one who is good and tells a parable about a good owner of Israel's vineyard. What good thing shall I do? In sum, rejoice in the goodness of God. Notice in our text, this is the key line, I think, especially for this point. In this story, in verse 10. Now when those who were hired first at 6 a.m., working all through the hot of a Middle Eastern day, when they came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. I want you to hone in on that phrase, they thought that they would receive. To me, it pictures somebody's imagination going wild as they're sitting in line, waiting to be paid for their work. That's the way the story unfolds. Jesus says at the very end, the last will be first. And so the last workers, the ones who were standing around all day, they did not give up. They did not go home. They stood around and they waited all day to get work, but nobody wanted them. Maybe they were too little. Maybe they were too weak. They were passed over. That's the point of this story, is that as Jesus keeps going back to the marketplace, these guys are still there and they're standing idle. And he asks, why haven't you worked? Nobody wants us. Nobody's hired us. So now those guys, the weakest, the smallest, the overlooked guys are the ones that worked the least amount of time and they get paid a full day's wage. And so these guys at the end of the line, they're, they're at the far back of the end of the line like, whoa, they got paid that? So then they keep moving forward. Whoa, those guys got paid that? They're like, you know what's coming to us? 
They're playing the comparison game. If that's what they got, well, then what am I going to get? Because I know I'm better than them. I'm stronger. I'm fitter. I'm, I'm a better worker. I worked longer and harder. I'm getting what's coming to me. Can you, can you see, as, as you let this story come alive, can you see their imaginations going wild as they think that they're about to get their payday? Like, man, this guy's wealthy. If he's paying that much for those puny guys, how much more are we going to get? That's the point. And there's something wrong with their imaginations. The punchline of the story is for you and I to feel sympathetic with these first hour 6 a.m. workers until the owner speaks. The punchline of the story comes here. Jesus says it this way. Friend, verse 13. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? They made an agreement. They had a contract right from 6 a.m. Will you work for this amount? Yes, we will. Well, great. And so he did no injustice. He gave the first hour workers what they were contracted for, and instead of cheating anyone, he instead decided to show absurd kindness and generosity to the workers that came later. It was fair. There was nothing unfair about it. All the while, those first hour men are thinking, this isn't fair. What's going on here? What they should have been thinking, what they should have been imagining, is this is a generous employer. He is taking such a big loss right now by paying these guys a full day's wage instead of a prorated rate. The labor cost was unnecessary. He could have saved himself a lot of money. That was just totally unwarranted. That's not what they're imagining. They're imagining themselves. They're thinking about their payday instead of rejoicing in the goodness of the generous owner. Do you see the difference between the two? Because if you can't, then you're going to have a really hard time following Jesus. In fact, that's probably at the core of a lot of the difficulties you and I do have in terms of following Jesus. Is that we're imagining ourselves. We're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about our payday, what we deserve, what we think we are entitled to, instead of rejoicing in the goodness of God when he blesses other people. Friend, think about this in your life. Did you not, maybe even this week, have a perfect illustration of this on Christmas Day? I know I did. I've got four young kids. And let's just put it this way without calling out names or pointing fingers. Some kids open presents and they get really excited about one. And then they open another one and they throw it down. What's that about? Were we being unfair? Did they deserve something? 
Or picture it this way. Kids, many of you are in the room. We didn't send you off to your class today, so I wanted to especially capture your imagination here. I want you to imagine mommy or daddy go away for a trip, and they're gone for two weeks on a wonderful daddy-mommy date for a few days or a week or something, and you've missed them. And so as they come back, they bring you gifts. They didn't have to, but out of their love and generosity to show how much they loved you, they brought you gifts. And I want you to imagine you start opening your gift, and one of you opens it, and it's a t-shirt from wherever mom and dad went. You're like, oh, thanks, cool t-shirt, and you like it, and you put it on, and it's your favorite color, and you can tell it was picked just for you. And then your brother or your sister opens a gift, and it's a new iPad. How many of you are looking at that t-shirt and wondering, where's my iPad? How come I didn't get an iPad? I don't like this shirt anymore. This is exactly what's going on in this story. Parents, we see this basically every time there's a birthday, every time there's a Christmas. But adults, many of us haven't grown up too well. We're the same exact way. That's the point of Jesus' story, is that other people are opening up God's blessings and his generosity. And instead of being like, well, that's cool. Good for you. I can rejoice with God's blessing on you. We're like, well, I don't like my gifts anymore. Why didn't I get that? I deserve better. I worked harder than them. And especially, they got that gift? Well, of course, I'm the better child. The text says that these workers grumbled. For any of you familiar with your Bibles, Old and New Testament. The word grumbled here is no accident. The same word used for the people of God as they wandered around in the wilderness, ungrateful for the abundance of food that God provided every day, and they grumbled and they grumbled, God, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt and be slaves again, because then we could have better food. Can you just imagine how heartbreaking that would be as a parent when you have those moments and you're like, what a brat. So they grumbled. The application should be clear to us, brothers and sisters. As we do church life together in community, can we rejoice with those who rejoice or does it stir up envy and jealousy, and all kinds of covetous desires? And do we imagine what we think we deserve and then get severely disappointed when we don't get it? One of the main reasons why we as a church have a regular rhythm of gathering as a church, whether in small groups and homes or in a large group downstairs at 10 a.m. on a regular basis is so that you can learn to practice to rejoice with those who rejoice. If those of you who are longing to be married and you have somebody come up and share, hey, guess what? We're engaged. Can you rejoice with that good news? Or does your heart just fall and sink and, and pain come because all you can think about is, well, why didn't I get that? Those of us that are longing for children and we find out that somebody else is having another baby again, what? How come I can't have children? 
The reason the church should be the church and not just a sermon to download off the internet is because God demands that we do following Jesus in community with one another so you can know each other's lives and have to live out these things and have your heart exposed when you hear updates and reports and prayer requests and there's good news that's happened. They got that job and promotion. They've only been working for a few weeks. I've been working for months. Wow. This is why we should make a commitment to think thoughts of rejoicing toward others. I want some of you to make this New Year's resolution. I will not look at social media accounts unless I will have a heart of rejoicing with those who God has blessed. If I feel the envy comparison game of everybody's beautiful vacations over Christmas break and think, man, how come they get that? I heard this week somebody give this example, real-life example of them reading on Facebook that some kids came in and woke them up singing them hymns in the morning. And the mom was like, what kind of crazy kids do you have? Like, this is what Facebook does to parents. You hear about people's kids and you're like, my kids aren't like that. Oh, they wake me up in the morning and it's not singing hymns. There's much worse surprises. So can you rejoice and just be like, wow, God gave them obedient kids. I've got these kids. Thankful God for kids. Some people are jealous of me because they're like, you've got kids. I wish I could have your kids even if they're bad. So make that New Year's resolution. When you're tempted to compare yourself with others' body image and the amount of workouts they're doing and their selfie pictures and whatever else that's on all of these social media sites and you feel that stirring up within you, just turn it off and maybe keep it off for a week or a lifetime. But you can look at them. I'm not saying it's evil or sinful. Make it a practice. Have a prayer or a mindset before you open up these devices and say, God, I want to have a heart to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because we know most people, in general, are sharing a lot of their good things. Which is why it's such a distorted picture. It's just like looking at the magazine pictures when you're checking out at the store and it's like all airbrushed and touched up perfect. That's the way we present ourselves on social media more often than not. Nobody sends the picture of like, you know, you got that beautiful Christmas picture. And then like right before that, the kids are like, ah! Like nobody takes that picture and puts that online. Merry Christmas, here's the howls. Why don't we send the pictures of like, here's real life? It's because we're caught up in this game. So friends, do your thoughts imagine the goodness of God. This story tells us that God is allowed to do whatever he pleases because it all belongs to him. Do your thoughts imagine the wealth of God? It all belongs to him. When you think about God, do you think about his wealth? His sovereign rule and reign and ownership of every square inch of the universe? 
Do you think about the generosity of God to share from the very beginning of creation? He is sharing the rule and reign by making humans as image bearers who are going to have dominion over the earth. Not be slaves and subjects to him as the great mighty king, but rather a God who delights in sharing all that he has. Do you imagine a God who is just in all that he decides to do with whatever he pleases? Or are you going to be the auditor that says, no, nope, that's not right? Can you imagine that God, in fact, knows more than you do? So when he blesses at this time and in this way to this person, maybe there's a reason that you just can't ever understand. So stop trying to figure him out. He knows more than you. He's governing all of human history all at once. He's listening to billions of prayers every day all at once. Can you fathom and imagine the mind of God to be able to take care of all of that and know that you only care about imagining blessings coming to you? Can you imagine a God who always keeps his promises? Doesn't this story beautifully illustrate at the very end? He says, I am not cheating you. I'm not doing anything unfair. I promised this and I'm delivering because that's what God does. He makes promises and he keeps them. Do you imagine a God whose ways and his thoughts are so far beyond? As far as heaven is above the earth, so are God's ways and his thoughts higher and further than our thoughts, whose kingdom pays the last first, whose kingdom includes the poor and the unimportant children-like citizens and excludes the arrogant, proud, rich, young rulers. Can you imagine a God and a kingdom that seeks out every one of those that the rest of the world has passed over? Can you imagine a God who has set up a world where it is more joyful and more blessed to give than it is to receive? So therefore, it is in his very nature that he is a generous, giving, loving God. And lastly, can you imagine a God whose justice includes respect for the dignity of those who are in need and a deep concern for their welfare? How does this story not help us see that he cares for the weak, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the homeless, or should we say here in this text, the jobless. Any of you unemployed? Any of you think God doesn't care about me? Jesus tells this story so that you would think otherwise. Imagine a different God because you have the wrong God. The God of the Bible cares about the weak and the unemployed and the jobless and those that are overlooked and those that didn't get the promotion and those who everybody else likes and adores and you think nobody likes me. Reimagine your God. Question two. Do your eyes see the goodness of God? Go back to our punchline in verse 15. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And then he asks this question. Or do you begrudge my generosity? And this is a translation of a Jewish kind of 
expression. So the translation's fine. There's nothing wrong with these words here translated that way. But here's the Jewish expression behind the translation. Or are your eyes evil at my goodness? That's literally what it says. The last question before the last phrase. That the last will be first and the first will be last. He says, or are your eyes evil at my goodness? Now, when you and I hear that, we maybe get it, but you need to realize it's a Jewish expression. It means more. It's a metaphor. So what's the metaphor? Well, it's about you have either good eyes or you have bad eyes, or you have eyes that can see the goodness of God. The way you see the world is a picture. It's a window into the very heart of your value system of how you see the world. So with your eyes, you see and look out, and the way you look out is the way that that shows your heart. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount. The evil eye is associated with greed and the mistaking value of earthly possessions over heavenly possessions. In other words, your eyes are an organ, a body part that creates judgment or evaluations. We're evaluating things every day with our eyes. And the Jewish concept, it's not just what's going on biologically, but what's heading down into our heart, which is why I said the first point was about your head, your imagination, your thoughts. This second point is about your heart. How does the way you see the world create a picture or a window into the value system of your heart? In other words, you and I need eyes, goggles, glasses to see the world and see God as being generous. The C.S. Lewis quote is very helpful here. He says that I do not believe in God on some sort of just whim. He says, no, I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not only because I can see the sun when I look outside, but because I can see everything else because of the sun. Is that you, my friend? Can you see the whole world differently? Are your eyes good or are your eyes evil? Are they good because you can see the goodness of God? And by the light of that goodness, now you see everything differently. So we need to be thinking about the way that we look at one another, the way we make value judgments. I think this has huge implications for the way that we uh, make evaluations of our money, our time, your daily planner. When you look at and make your schedule, how are you evaluating that? Your sense of worth or dignity somebody else's sense of worth or dignity. And Jesus here is asking the question, do you have evil eyes because of my goodness? That's the point. The point of the story is to see that God is good. He is generous and good, and he has people looking at that goodness, and they have evil eyes. They're evaluating that as, that's not fair. That's not right. Instead of, wow, that's really good. How kind, how loving, how generous. I think it's extremely important for our discipleship, for it to reach our hearts. To have our minds, our imaginations, and our hearts being transformed is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. And so for many of us, we're going to have to retrain the way we use our eyes. 
because they're directly connected to our hearts. So again, whether it's the way we look at social media or the way we walk around today, your everyday lives. There are many men who really struggle with objectifying women based on their beauty and then having thoughts about the way they value them with their eyes on whether they're attractive to them or not. Men, we need to readjust our goggles. We need to have good eyes with the goodness of God that sees every male and female made in God's image of having equal worth and dignity because that's how God made them, just as they are, and not objectifying them. This is why Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. At this Christmas season, how did you do at making evaluations with your eyes? How do you do at making evaluations of what is good and worthy and right? What makes for a good Christmas? Is it because you got a lot of stuff? Or is it because there was something eternal happening? Relationships deepening, love being shared, generosity being given to one another. I want you to think also about how you think through every aspect of your life through the lens of how you see it in light of God's goodness and his love and his mercy and let that be shaping and transforming your heart, your mind, and then lastly, your hands. Do your hands do good things? Are they filled with generosity? That's our third and final question. Do your hands have open-handed policies? Maybe another way to picture it here is, are your hands like this or are they like this? Are they open or are they closed? Are they tight? Are they holding on to? Or are you free to be generous the way this owner of the home, master of the house, is generous with his money and his time. I mentioned at the very beginning that there are eight things I wanted you to keep in mind as you read it, and the last two were the two surprises. And so I want to point out those two surprises in case you missed it. First, there's a surprise right in the middle. The surprise comes when you're reading the story and then enters in a character that hadn't previously been in the story. So I want you to turn your eyes to verse 6. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Surprise! The owner of the house has a foreman or a manager Why is that a surprise? Well, because you should be thinking, if this man is as wealthy as he is, which he seems to be quite wealthy in Jesus' story, and he owns a vineyard, which is a sign of his wealth, and the way that he's paying these guys is a great sign of his wealth, then he surely has workers under him, like without a doubt. Any Jew hearing this story knows about a rich man, knows that, He's got 
people underneath of him. So why is the foreman not doing what the master's doing? Like the master should be sitting back and letting the foreman do the work, but the master's doing the work. That's the surprise. Or as Ken Bailey sums up quite well, he is a a deceased uh, Middle Eastern Bible scholar, and he's very familiar with the ancient world and familiar with the Middle Eastern concepts. He says, land odors in the Middle East are known traditionally to be gentlemen-like farmers. In other words, they hire others to do the work of farming the land, and then they appoint a foreman or a manager to manage the estate. So a traditional landowner may give his foreman careful instructions in the morning and then ask for a report at the very end of the day. But for the owner to make this trek in person from farm to market back and forth five times in a single day would have been absurd. That is always the manager's job. So there's a surprise right in the middle of the story when the foreman comes into the scene and you're like, wait, where's he been all along? I think that this foreman and the presence of him in the story is showing to us that the master of the house is not a far off and distant God, but rather one who comes near, who gets his hands dirty. To put it another way, I think that the only way for this story to make sense is for God to become human. For him, to incarnate in human flesh and take on the very person of the story, the master of the house. Jesus is the master of the house. He's the one that's not sitting back and waiting for this all to get done by somebody else. He gets involved and he does what no traditional landowner, or in this case, no traditional God would ever do. Can you tell me of a God who takes on human form? Is that a common concept in world religions? Well, by no means. For in fact, there are no other world religions that talk about God becoming a human and meeting people right where they are. And the way the story unfolds, you can tell that he's doing this progressively. He meets the workers, and then he meets the other workers that were passed over, and it's like he could have just grabbed all of them all at once. But to tell this story in this way is to say he got the workers that are still standing around at the 11th hour at 5 p.m. They're still holding out hope. They're still desiring to work for at least an hour. They didn't go home yet. And Jesus says, I'll meet them right where they're at as well. I mean, the whole story just comes together because of the way he unfolds it in that manner. And so Jesus is the God of the Bible who meets people where they're at and gets his hands dirty to actually do the work of the foreman. He is a generous master and he seeks out the lost and those who are overlooked. So when you picture God in your thoughts and when you look at the world, you need to look at them through the lens and through the imagination of Christ. Jesus will go to any length to show off his generosity. He gave his hands. His hands got dirty with his blood. Jesus gave his life. What more generous thing could you give 
to display your generosity to those who are least and overlooked. And lastly, the parable reaches a dramatic moment at the very end. Because just like the story that was read earlier in the service, the prodigal son story, it leaves you with a cliffhanger, another surprise. The surprise isn't the punchline. The surprise is that it says, or do you begrudge my generosity? The last will be first, and the first last. So you're left hanging. What happened? What did they do? Did, did, did they appreciate their gift now? Were they rebuked? Or are they still angry? Just like in the story of the prodigal sons, you've got two sons. And the last son, the younger son, was receiving his reward first, embellished with great love and kindness from the father who had great compassion. And the older brother is just like these workers. Hey, I was first. Hey, that's mine. I am entitled to that. That was my calf. That was my fattened calf that you just killed and slaughtered. What are you doing? You've never thrown a party for me. The father entreats the older brother, and the story ends. What happened? The guy I just quoted, Ken Bailey, he argues that it's supposed to be like you hear the story, and it ends, and then now you go and do. How are you going to respond? What's your action going to be? You're supposed to fit yourself in the story and realize, who are you in the story? Are you struggling with older brother, 6 a.m. worker, resentment and bitterness and anger toward God because he's not given you the blessings that he gave, those that you don't think deserve it? So what are you going to do now? Or are you the younger brother? Are you the one that's always been overlooked, always misunderstood, never been picked first for any team, any job, any position. You feel like nobody loves you. Here right now, God is saying, I do. What are you going to do about that? Keep believing the lie that there's no one that loves me. Oh, God could never love me. Or will you receive this as the very heart of the gospel, the good news that God in fact does, and let that change your very soul? every part of your being. God is good even toward someone like me. So what are you going to do? Are you going to be generous like God is generous? How generous is God? Are you going to just set a goal of 10% tithe when some of you, that is too small of a goal? Or are you going to be generous? Just this week I heard of a story of a a guy working out in Portland, he's giving away 99% of his salary. Just made some big deal that worked really well to make him a lot more money, but he's living off of 1% of his salary. How about that for a tithe? 99%. That sounds more like the generosity of Jesus. He gives as much as he possibly can, even when it hurts as he gives his life and dies for us on the cross 
giving himself fully so that you and I could be received. Even if you're the very last, you'll be first. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to pray and ask that we would be thankful people. We want to thank you now for your extreme and abundant generosity. God, we want to be thankful that we have your word. We have a church. We have a family, a church family. We want to be thankful, God, that just this morning we have experienced these blessings and it is easy for us to go through the routine and not acknowledge what a blessing these things are. So God, we thank you for the brothers and sisters that are gathered here today. We're thankful for the chance to sing your praises and tell you how good you are. We're thankful, God, that we are not left in the dark wondering, is God good? Even when our circumstances might feel as if he's not good, we know that you are good. We know you work through dark circumstances. We know that you work through the darkest circumstance of Jesus dying, being the most generous gift ever, the most wonderful, glorious blessing. So we want to thank you for the cross. We want to thank you for the gospel. We want to thank you that even if this is the worst day of our life, we can still be receiving much better than we deserve. God, we're thankful that in some ways you are not fair. You do not give us what we deserve. We're thankful that your fairness is about your being fair to your promises, and therefore you have kept them, and that you have achieved them through Jesus. So we want to relish in that today. And we want to ask that your Holy Spirit would be changing and transforming our hearts and our actions and that we would not just hear this reminder today of your goodness, but that it would lead to change how we do what we do, how we see what we see, how we think what we think. So God, move and change in us in these ways, in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Typically at this time, we take the Lord's Supper together and you remain seated, but we're going to do that downstairs for all who can join us. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing two songs. Hopefully they're very fitting. The first song is Amazing Grace, the old hymn, just sweet, amazing grace. Maybe we should even sing like the last verse a cappella or something and just have it echoing the beauty of God's amazing grace. And then all glory be to Christ. Would you stand? Let's sing together. <laughs>